This is Andy Crouch, and welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. Garrett Oliver has been on a bit of a media blitz in recent months, following his announcement of the formation of the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. The foundation, as you will hear, will fund technical education and career advancement opportunities for black, indigenous, and people of color in the brewing and distilling industries. Oliver is obviously well known as the longtime brewmaster of the Brooklyn Brewery, and in that role, he has seen the beer industry change and evolve in amazing ways. He's also seen it stay the same in some troubling others. Oliver stands in a unique position in the craft beer industry at this point in time. In one sense, he is a statesman for flavorful beer, one of its longtime and most popular advocates. He is a renowned author, a frequent speaker, and teacher at events around the globe, and a James Beard award winner. In another, he is routinely one of the only black people to be found at industry events, even those that have thousands of attendees. Lately, Oliver has been ruminating on the topic, and he has a lot to say. During his many recent media interviews, Oliver has frequently noted that in his decades at Brooklyn, he had never had a black person apply for a brewing job there. At first, the line strikes you as a bit shocking. But after a few moments of reflection, you start to wonder, how is that possible? Never had a single application? How did Brooklyn Brewery, located in one of the most diverse places on earth, Let that go on for so long. It's a question that Oliver is still grappling with, and he discusses the issue at length in this interview. He also grapples with the criticism that his high standards, which require a formal brewing education for Brewside staff, has served as a restrictive force, an act of gatekeeping that kept out black applicants. And while you will hear him contemplate the subject, you're not going to hear him apologize for reaching for excellence in his staffing. In this interview, Oliver takes us all the way back to the beginning, talking about his upbringing in Hollis, Queens, and where he developed his special relationship with food. We also discuss the state of beer journalism, his thoughts on Dave Infante's article on black people in the beer industry that we discussed on last week's podcast, and his plans for the Michael Jackson Foundation. Our interview is next. But first, a word from our sponsor. Does your brewery make deliveries? Routific is a route planning software that combines powerful route optimization with a five-star delivery experience for your customers. Managing local deliveries can be effortless and profitable. Go to routific.com to start your free, no-obligation, seven-day trial. Use promo code BEEREDGE to get your entire first month free. To begin, you know, and this is a question I'm sure you've gotten a million times over the years, but it's one that I I don't know that I've fully read. It's just, can you tell me a little bit about sort of your background and, and where you were raised? Ah, well, I was uh, raised here in New York City, uh, Hollis, Queens, which is the some of the furthest reaches of New York City before you reach the Long Island border. Um, so born and bred New Yorker. Uh, a little bit of a unusual background for, you know, an African-American man my age. Uh, my father was an art director and creative director for uh, Young and Rubicon, mm-hmm. which is a 
major advertising firm. Um, he did everything from print campaigns to television commercials. Uh, and uh, uh, by the time uh, he passed away, he had been a uh, trustee of Rhode Island School of Design, where he went, mm-hmm. um, you know, for a good many years. Uh, my, my mother was assistant membership director for the New York Academy of Sciences. Um, and so I grew up in a household where, you know, certainly we were uh, subject to all of the societal forces that were, you know, buffeting any uh, African-American family mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but we also, you know, were most of the time fairly solidly in the middle class. Um you know, which has, you know, converred, you know, on me advantages that, you know, not not uh, most African-Americans, I would say, in the United States uh, have had. And that becomes, I think, uh, you know, relevant as we get into the foundation work. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is a math science high school that requires an exam to get in. Um, you know, that has its own interesting uh, history. And yep present controversies uh but it was a great high school you know to uh it was then mostly jewish and is now mostly asian yeah you know and i think that tells a certain story about you know immigrants in america etc um and uh then went to boston university got my degree in broadcasting and film directly after that moved to london uh and stage manage rock bands for um uh, a venue called University of London Union. I had previously been at Boston University in charge of all student entertainment, so I'd put on major concerts before and ran a concert stage. And so uh, this is something I'm familiar with, plus the film background, production, etc. cetera. Uh, came back from London, fired up for beer, um, which I had discovered in Europe because, you know, we didn't really have beer here mm-hmm. then. We thought we were drinking beer, and it turned out that you know, the stuff that I knew wasn't, you know, was not uh, what traditionally uh, people were talking about, at least in Europe. Um, and so, uh, you know, I came back looking, you know, with an interest in what is now known as craft beer and started brewing at home, you know, which eventually led to my going to work for Manhattan Brewing Company mm-hmm. uh, uh, in 1989. You know, and I came to Brooklyn Brewery in 94 and... You know, I think you know uh, a good part of the uh, the rest. So I've been professional brewer now for uh, for 31 years. Um, you know, and 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 part of the reason for the foundation is that in those 31 years, 30 of which, or almost 30 of which, I've spent in the brewmaster's chair. You know, as head of department, mm-hmm. um, I have not had a single African American applicant for. A job in the brewing department. Um, I have sent Gambians to brewing school. I have sent Haitians to brewing school. I've sent Iraqis to brewing school. Um, but we never had anybody, uh, uh, you know, who who came from my background actually even appear in front of me to apply. And that is a subject that I am definitely going to get into because it is a, it's a fascinating one. But just to continue, just to take a step back, what was your family's relationship to, to food and drink? You know, how did, how did that influence, you know, how your palate and your interest in the subject developed? Well, my father uh, was in the Korean War. He was stationed in Okinawa. 
And, you know, his biggest friends there were the cooks. Um, you know, he was a communications officer. And I think he learned from the cooks, like, you know, and some of these guys were actually serious people who had been, you know, uh, working in hotels and stuff like that, uh, you know, in the United States and cooking at a pretty high level. So my father was a very accomplished cook. Um, hmm. And uh, exactly how it turned out this way, I'm not sure, but he came to have a whole coterie of friends whose big uh, hobby was uh, hunting birds okay. uh, with dogs, uh, sometimes on a horseback with shotguns. <laughs> um, and, you know, this was our hobby. He and I really bonded over this activity, which, as you can imagine, if you're, you know, a 12 or 13 year old kid, mm -hmm. and, you know, and you get to get on a horse and and, uh, you know, and, and, and shoot some birds, you know, and and right and uh, uh, and shoot up a shotgun and then make it into dinner. That's pretty cool. <laughs> or at least, uh, you know, I thought it was pretty cool at the time. Mm -hmm. So and my father would come home and I'd have to clean the pheasant and, or the partridge or the quail. And then he would mount it in this beautiful, you know, white wine cream sauce. Uh, my mother's, uh, uh, you know, background in cooking was very typical of, you know, of the time. So, you know, she was the one really cooking for the family. Uh, she was not particularly amused that everybody, when every once in a while, my dad would cook like once every couple of months, you know, we'd all be up in arms about how wonderful the food was mm -hmm. because she was cooking <laughs> every day, you know, for three kids yeah. and did not get the same level of, uh, a response and thanks yeah. at the same time she cooked in the you know in the american style of the time we had some pretty good stuff that she made really well but you know there were no fresh vegetables or mm -hmm. anything like that uh vegetables came in a frozen block you know they were either del monte or bird's eye and she would cook for 30 minutes until gray just the way it said on the package yeah. um and so this is the kind of food i grew up with and then I moved to, you know, to, to England and the food got worse. Uh, there's nothing as, as horrible as British food, you know, of the 1980s, mm -hmm. um, except for the Indian food, of course, which was spectacular. And then finally, I ended up going to France and traveling all over Europe. And I, you know, I got back with a different kind of appreciation for both beer and food. Um, and over time, food has become, you know, sitting next to beer. Uh, uh, you know, one of the principal pleasures in life. And if you, you know, if you look at my Instagram feed or whatever else, it's not actually mostly beer. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see a lot of food in there and, and, and other things too. Now, New York City is known for a lot of things, but hunting quail on horseback is not one of them to my knowledge. Where, well, whereabouts you know, it, were you doing that? It, it's, uh, it's funny you should say that because, you know, uh, Long Island, in those days, mm. and now I do okay. have to, you know, to give away my age, you know, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, huge parts of Long Island mm. that are now office parks were simply, you know, open field and wilderness um, and or maybe former farms and things like that. You know, I mean, uh, uh, Long Island was full of potato mm -hmm. farms, and all kinds of stuff. So if you went to a place like the Pine Barrens out at Quogue or whatever else, you could be miles from anybody yeah. um, on horseback. And there was a German short, there's, I believe it still actually exists, the Long Island German Short Hair Pointers Club. German Short Hair Pointers uh, were the type of dogs that we had. Mm -hmm. 
kind of classic hunting dogs. And there was a club on Long Island because there were so many hunters on Long Island that they had their, you know, their own dog club. And uh, the activities of the club were what are referred to as field trials, which is basically a hunting contest. Mm -hmm. And some of these would happen on Long Island, but, you know, some of them would happen uh, upstate New York, you know, starting at places like Somers right outside the city and then, you know, up all the way to Binghamton. You know, we would travel to Binghamton for, you know, a field trial. And so, um, yeah, this was the big, this is the big hobby. Uh, and, uh, and certainly helped uh, cement my appreciation of food. And so when did beer come into the picture for you? Was that in during London? And actually, just to step back for a second, when you were at BU, what, you know, what were you drinking then? Uh, I will tell the truth, which is that, first of all, we all drank beer. I drank beer just along with all my friends. I didn't actually like it, yep. nor did I know anybody who did like it. It was there, and we drank it. And we were poor college students. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that we drank Budweiser when we had money. Right. We almost never had any money. But if we had a little bit of money, we drank Budweiser. And then if we could find uh, uh, a Guinness anywhere and afford it, we would take one Budweiser and split the bottle of Guinness, you know, uh, four Budweisers and split the bottle of Guinness into these four Budweisers to, you know, give it some different flavors. Mm -hmm. We didn't even know that there were beers that existed in the world that had a flavor like that. Yeah. We never we never heard of brown ales or anything like that. We were trying to get something else. But the stuff that we normally drank was, you know, it wasn't nearly as good as Budweiser. I mean, it was it was terrible. <laughs> um, you know, Hoffenreffer, which at the time was known as the Green Death, um, you know, Knickerbocker, um, all kinds of regional brands, many of which have since died out. Mm -hmm. uh, Mickey's Big Mouth was a was was a, yeah. was a favorite uh, of the day, um, and stuff like that. And that's what you know. That's what we drank. And if we got a little extra, you know, cash in our pocket, pocket, then it was Bud, which tasted pretty neutral. Yeah. Um, and it, but it was only when I moved to Europe that I came to realize, like, wow, like beer can have all of these flavors, which I'd never even vaguely heard of. Um, you know, so my first taste of British cask beer was my first day in London. And I went straight to the pub and they handed me this, you know, this big uh, uh, kind of fish bowl of amber liquid. And I was like, what in God's name is this? <laughs> and do you know what that what that pint was? I don't, mm. you know, I'll bet it was, uh, you know, the, the biggest pub chain in London at the time was probably Bass Charrington, you know, so mm -hmm. it could have been Bass, uh, but it could have been, you know, the, uh, the, uh, uh, something like Watney's, yep. you know, the, the local breweries were not, they had pubs, but they were not nearly as common mm -hmm. as those of the, of the bigger breweries, which, uh, which later, you know, kind of faded from the scene. So you'd see Fuller's and Young's around, uh, but I'll bet it was a Watney's pub or a Bass Charrington pub. I don't remember. And was there one particular pint that you that you know beyond that one, one that you actually know the name of that you can remember that you you really thought this is something this is something that may change my life, or maybe that wasn't it. Maybe it was just more subtle. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I came quickly to you know distinguish between you know Young's and Fuller's, which were the locals. 
uh, and then Samuel Smith's, uh, you know, particularly loved their pubs and loved their beers. Um, and so, you know, in those days before Samuel Smith's became rather strange, uh, you know, the pubs were all signed and were easy to find. And, mm-hmm. um, and so the Samuel Smith's, uh, uh, you know, uh, brewery bitter was, uh, was fantastic. And then every once in a while you might find something like Adnum's, uh, et cetera, especially if you got outside the city, you'd find other beers. Um, and then of course, bass was, you know, just draft bass, uh, was still, you know, somewhere within its heyday, uh, and when well-kept was excellent, but I came to really understand the whole thing of, you know, I didn't know what it was, but you knew that certain pubs were known for keeping their beers well, and some didn't. And, you know, the first, the first thing that you talk about when you got to the pub was how the pints were, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, you know, if, if someone said these are spot on, you know, and spot on was like the, the term of art, right. Spot on meant, you know, in perfect condition. And it also meant that we were staying. Yeah. You know, Cause if you, <laughs> if you got, if you had, if you had seats and pints were spot on, there's no way you're going somewhere else. Yeah. That's it. Um, so when you return to the States, you know, what is the, you know, the beer scene and also give us a time frame there. What is the, what does the American beer scene look like and what is sort of the first American craft beer that really caught your attention? Well, there was, you know, you, you basically went to a bar and it was Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, you know, you know, Heineken, maybe sometimes Guinness in New York city. And then Coors wasn't even in New York city Mm -hmm. yet, uh, in 1984, you know, there, there were some very early entrants, uh, long gone, uh, one call that was called whites, W H Y T E Mm -hmm. uh, apostrophe S um there was new amsterdam yep. which uh, came out uh you know relatively early onto the scene maybe 19 uh, uh you know 83 84 85 somewhere mm-hmm. in there a very early uh contract beer um manhattan brewing company where i later went to work which opened november 9th of 1984 and i was there at the time um when it opened opening night because uh, I was waiting for a place that had this beer. And I started to brew at home, not because I was interested in brewing. I was interested in having the beer. Right. And the only way to make to, to, to get the beer was to make it yourself. Mm. So imagine if the only bread you could get was Wonder Bread and you had been eating Pam Poilin in Paris and were dying to have a real loaf of bread. And the only way you could get it was to make it yourself. Right. That was that was basically, you know, where I was sitting. And then I fell in love with actually doing it, you know, through doing it. But, you know, I didn't have a goal of being a brewer or really any interest in brewing and fermentation. I just wanted the end product. You have uh, also done a lot of writing over the years about beer in addition to your brewing and and speaking and, and being an industry leader, you know, whether in book or article form. What is your view of the state of beer journalism today? Well, like all like all journalism, uh, it's suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have not really discovered, and journalists have not really discovered necessarily uh, a way to you know stem the tide of people wanting content to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by free, I mean not paid for. Right. And so. Uh, 
that's very difficult. The same way that it's very difficult these days to be a rock star on the level of, say, 1970s Billy Joel or something. I mean, and not even like the biggest rock star, but like a rock star where you would make millions of dollars. Um, it's very difficult today for somebody to do what Michael Jackson did. I mean, not only was he the best writer, first of all, uh, and not only did he give us the entire taxonomy of like the world of beer as we understand it, um, but he sold 13 million books. Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. that's a, a ludicrous number of books. You know, and I argue and I can say without, I think, successful fear of, of contradiction that he was the most important voice in food and drink, food and drink in the 20th century. Nobody uh, can claim to have had the influence that he had. I don't believe we would have craft beer, at least not as we understand it, uh, without his writing. We wouldn't know. We would not ever have known what saisons or IPAs were. Um, you know, so that all that stuff really, you know, came to us through writers like that. Um, and there was really only one Michael and there will not be another one, right. you know, after, you know, there are other great writers, obviously out of the UK and we had some in the United States. Um, by the time I came to write Brewmaster's Table, I really wanted to make sure that I was saying something really very different, mm -hmm. you know, because... There was no point in trying to cover the ground that that Michael had covered. It'd be like trying to rewrite Mozart. Yeah. You're just going to make a fool of yourself. But I had a different message, you know, which, uh, you know, came out of really trying to tie beer uh, not only in a lifestyle way, but also in a respect way uh, to the food world because we had the rise back in 2002, 2003 of things like Food Network. Mm -hmm. Chefs were becoming stars, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, so food was getting this respect that it didn't really get before. Um, and people started talking about James Beard House and whatever else. Uh, I said, well, how can we, you know, well, how can we ride the coattails of this movement? And then in giving people ideas about how they can put beer and food together, um, I kind of realized, well, you know, if people just put a little bit of time and thought into their beer choices every day, they will have every day a slightly better life. Yep. I mean, not like, you know, it's not going to change your entire world or something, but you're going to have a slightly better life. You know, your day is going to be a little bit more enjoyable. And there really aren't that many things you can discover that are going to do that for you every day and that are affordable. And so, you know, I thought that would be a cool thing to do, which is kind of where Brewmaster's Table came from. I mean, it was kind of a book that was burning a hole in my pocket. And I would presume that you are, as someone who enjoys wine, and uh, I would presume that you are probably a consumer of, of wine writing as well. How do you think, you know, wine writing compares to, to that in the beer world? And what you know? What out there you know can beer journalists and beer writers you know do differently or do better? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Wine has uh, so much of a huge head start, uh, you know, in the American culture, and you know, in it really goes down. You know, I got I give lectures which involve you know this subject, which I find interesting, but. 
you know, our, our interest in things that come out of, you know, some of the European country, uh, uh, cultures, and particularly France, you know, are, are freighted with all kinds of things, including class. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, wine connotes class within the United States in a way that it does not in France or Italy or Spain or a lot of other parts of the world. And part of this is built directly into the English language, um, you know, which is basically, a, you know, a, a, a split language between Latinate forms and Anglo-Saxon forms with a smattering of Greek, you know, and basically that's English. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result of this melding together after the Norman conquest of these two languages, uh, you have, you know, uh, you have lots of synonyms uh, in in English that are either Norman based or, or Anglo-Saxon based. You know, so do you eat or do you dine? Do you meet or do you have a rendezvous? Mm-hmm. You know, do you hit somebody or do you strike them? And you can line up 200 synonyms in English and, you know, from the English version, the Anglo-Saxon version to the Latinate version. And in every instance to your ear, the Latin version will sound sophisticated and the Anglo-Saxon will sound base. And there are no exceptions. You know, this is the background radiation of English. You know, uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon things sound blunt and coarse, whereas Latinate things sound sophisticated. This comes directly out of the Norman Conquest because basically for 400 years, the Plantagenet ruled England. And, And they set in motion this thing where the aristocracy drinks wine uh, and they drank beer also. Um, and but only, you know, only rich people and the clergy uh, got to drink wine. So there's, you know, beer on one side and wine on the other. And this kind of follows through to this day with our, you know, bowing to wine as somehow a more sophisticated drink. And we are conditioned, even in our language, to believe it. And so they start off with a huge advantage. I'll also say this, though, the wine people have actually done the work, mm-hmm. which we have failed to do. Um, so until Cicerone program came along, there was almost nothing in the United States that might, you know, stand up to a program like WSET or any of the other uh, accreditation programs within the wine world. I remember doing an event once. Uh, It was through Gourmet Magazine, and I saw the woman who was doing a presentation before me. She she was the leader of a team of 20 chefs that worked for Mondavi Wines. Mm -hmm. Mondavi Wines were huge, and they were having, any given day, there might be 30 Mondavi events across the United States. So their job, 20 chefs, their only job was to figure out what recipes made Mondavi wines taste best so that when people put on these events, they could make sure that Mondavi wines showed their very best. And she did a demonstration of the things that they had discovered about seasoning, et cetera. When you season things this way, Mondavi wines taste better. Completely blew my mind because I just said, I mean, this is back 15 years ago, at Mm. least. 
And I said, like, we're not doing anything like that. You know, we, not only do we not have any money anyway, but the big brewers aren't doing that. They were not at the time interested in craft beer. And even now, I'll bet there are not 20 chefs, you know, working for Anheuser-Busch. Right. There, I'm sure there are some. But the uh, the the level of work that they that the wine industry has put into maintaining their primacy has been amazing. And you know, every newspaper has got a wine critic. But even though craft beer is bigger than wine in the United States and more money is spent on it than wine in the United States, and there's more interest in it than in wine in the United States, you do not see right. You know, beer writers engaged. Um, and part of this is because, you know, follow the money. <laughs> you know, yep. Sutter Home is going to place a full page ad. Yeah. And uh, craft brewers aren't. It's that simple. The money, the money, you know, the, the, the money uh, that the Mondavis of the world put out there paid for the newspapers. And they knew where their bread was buttered. Yeah. And, you know, they, 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 you know, they create wine sections that, you know, speak to um, a certain class of people or people who aspire to be within a certain right, class right. of people. And suddenly, you know, you're swirling uh, a Cabernet in a glass and suddenly, you know, your grandfather wasn't a coal miner anymore. Yeah. You know, you were <laughs> always here. You know, in this you know beautiful place, in this beautiful house, and look at us—we're drinking wine in the countryside. In transitioning back to the the conversation about Michael Jackson and the and the new foundation, um, you had mentioned you know, early on, and I've heard you you know speak in other interviews as well that Brooklyn had never had any black people apply for brewing jobs. Why do you think that was? Well, I think that you know there's you know it's such a it's such a complex thing that you have to really look at the complexity of race in America, which is why when uh, Dave Infante from Thrillist came to me five years ago asking me that question, I turned him away, you know, because I said, you, you do not appear to have noticed the country that you live in. Mm -hmm. You have not noticed that most of the places you go you do not see any black people. Uh, when you go to the top restaurants, even though there's plenty of money uh, within the black community that could put some people in the chairs here, you do not see any black people. Mm -hmm. You do not see black people behind the bar. You don't see black people at the bar. You don't see them in the chairs. You do not see them cooking on the line in the kitchen. The black guy is the dishwasher, not even the server. Mm -hmm. You know, in the top restaurants in New York City, you know, at that time or, you know, even now pre-COVID. And so we as a society are much more segregated than we like to believe. Um, also, for many historical reasons, you know, black people in the United States have on average one tenth of the uh, uh, the assets of white families you know and you can look that up anywhere mm -hmm. it's just true so if you put these things together and brooklyn brewery is operating like a michelin star restaurant you know we're not a brew pub 
uh, you're not going to work your way up from being, a, a, you know, a dishwasher or a tour guide and land in the brewery because, you know, we basically, and this is my, was my way of doing things. I wanted to see a couple of years of experience uh, or equivalent coursework. Mm. You know, I want to see dedication to brewing. That was what I was interested in. We did, anybody who was not dedicated to brewing uh, and didn't have the fire in their eyes, we didn't want to know them. Didn't want to know them, didn't want to see them. And so, you know, are you on fire to do this, you know, to follow this cause? That was the way that I was looking at things. But if you look at the number of African-Americans who are actually working in brew houses, well, that's under 1%, right. right? And then you take the fact that those people, on average, might have 10% of the assets that a, a white person and a similar person might have. And then you add on the fact that an MBAA course, uh, a short course, is about $3,000. The American Brewers Guild course, out of which we've hired many people, excellent course, is about $9,000. You know, the Master Brewers course at UC Davis is $16,000. Well, do the math, right. you know. Uh, basically, and this is, you know, I will take my responsibility for my part in this problem. Um, there was never a possibility, really, in real life, that it was likely that a black person was ever going to appear in before me with the qualifications that were necessary to work at Brooklyn Brewery. Right. You know, and that was not a, a situation that I had sought to make. I was carrying out the best interests of the brewery, which is to have really skilled people in the brew house. And, you know, you make a mistake in the brew house. It's not, you know, you burned a piece of fish. Right. You kill somebody. Yeah. You know, or you ruin a $75,000 tank of beer, you know, and, and so, you know, we want to make sure if we say, okay, I need you to go sanitize that tank that you know exactly what you're doing. You're not going to collapse the tank. You're not going to kill anybody. You're not going to burn yourself, you know, and you're not going to ruin the beer. However, um, the end result, even though my actions, as far as I was concerned, were certainly not racist. The end result of what I was doing was in fact racist mm. because it had racist outcomes. Right. <laughs> and that is the thing that the foundation seeks to solve, you know, because they are at least solved for some people. There are many, many paths into the brewery, just as there are into the kitchen. Many of the top chefs in the United States did not go to cooking school. Right. You know, they, they they apprentice, they work their way up, but you have to have connections, money, you know, et cetera. People who stage in the great, you know, in the great uh, uh, kitchens of Europe. Well, in order to stage, they're not paying you like you. You have to have some money mm -hmm. in order to be able to go and do that in the right. first place. So basically, the whole thing is rigged, you know. Now, it's possible to make your way into the brew house the way I did, um, but it becomes less and less possible as the brewing industry becomes more and more sophisticated. 
used to be guy was a home brewer you might sure why don't you come work for us and that may still be the case at the brew pub level right and that's a great way to get into it but then you know how many black people know a brewer yeah and people tend to hire who they know hey this friend of mine he's really into beer do you want to talk to him you know, this is the way, you know, people pass stuff around in conversations. It's not, you know, a lot of these jobs don't ever make it up onto any job board or anything like that. And then you have to know where the job board is. So there's, you know, there are so many interlinked deficits. Um, but the other half of it, which, you know, I have only realized over the last few years was not true was that black people simply weren't interested in craft beer. Right. And it turned out that, well, yes, they were less likely to have heard of it, but when they encounter craft beer, they like it to exactly the same extent as right. everybody else. And so I went to Fresh Fest last year in Pittsburgh, and it was a really eye-opening experience. I had never seen, like, 3,000 completely geeked out black people <laughs> drinking craft beer in one place at one time. Um, and rather than being a segregated beer festival of some sort, an African-American beer festival, it was actually very mixed. You know, there were maybe 30, 35% of other people, mm -hmm. which you never saw anywhere right. in the Great American Beer Festival to nope. any other festival that you wanted to name, pretty much. And so I kind of realized, well, like we're leaving out, like probably half of America, you know, between Latinos mm -hmm. and, and, and black people and Asians and whoever else, you know, we're leaving these people out. And if you wonder why people don't come into your tap room, all you have to do is reverse the picture. And it's a difficult thing for people to do because it's an uncomfortable thing to say to somebody, but suppose Every time you went to a craft beer bar or to a brewery, when you walked in there, everybody in there was black. Right. Now, you'd like to think that you'd be fine. You know? <laughs> and, and maybe, sure, maybe you would be. But you know what? Most people, they don't want to admit it, but they get to the front door and look in there and they'd be wondering, well, maybe this isn't for me. Mm -hmm. Am I supposed to be here? Um, and it might not be the place didn't invite you. Like there was nothing, nothing wrong. Nobody acted badly, but it's just like you, you look in the door and everybody looks the same, you know, or if you walked into a bar and there was nobody in there, but women, black women, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you might think you were in the wrong place. Right. So women who walk into beer bars often will stick their heads in there and say, it's all guys in here. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. Black people would stick their heads in the beer in the place and say, it's all white. Maybe I'm in the wrong place. But what happens if the brewery has some people working for it, you know, who are from different backgrounds? Well, they tell and invite their friends. Right. You know, and their friends invite their friends. And eventually you have a tap room that looks like America. And you have greater outreach to your customers. And instead of leaving half of America out of your possible market, you actually expand the market massively. So even if people don't have an interest in diversity as a value, 
you know, anybody who is a smart business person in beer wants to see, you know, every black person of means in the United States drinking craft mm -hmm. beer and, and Latino people and Asian people and indigenous people, everybody. You know, why would you want to cut off half of your market? When you were, you mentioned that you had sent, you know, Iraqis and, and Gambians and other folks to, to brewing school. Do you have any regrets about, you know, do you have any regrets about setting, you know, the criteria at, you know, technical brewing background, uh, you know, throughout your, your work with Brooklyn? No, I don't. Okay. I, I think that, uh, the fault is in being unaware of the effects of the decision and in not working hard enough to provide other pathways that were equally valid. I'm not going to put my team on the line next to somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Never going to happen. I mean, everybody doesn't come in at the same level of, uh, of, um, you know, of, uh, uh, of skills, but frankly, you know, I'm, I cook in front of audiences all the time. I've been doing it for years, you know, and I will, I will say without, you know, you know, without worrying that much about it, like I'm not scared to cook for anybody. I'm really, really good. I'm an excellent cook. However, if you put me in a restaurant kitchen, of even a relatively modest restaurant on Saturday night during the rush, mm -hmm. I have no, I would melt into a pool of butter, you know, and yeah. you'd have to mop me, you know, you'd have to mop me up. I would have no idea what was going on. Um, so having, you know, having homebrewing skills or whatever else, completely irrelevant. You know, you need to know how a brewery runs and what the feel is and what you're expected to do and the scientific basis behind it. And there are a lot of people who have made their way into brewing without actually having any underpinning. So they'll brew by rote. The brew master showed me to do this, add this much water, add this much grain, wait this amount of time, run it off like this, bring it to a boil, put the hops in, put it through the cooler, throw two buckets of yeast in. Mm -hmm. And it works. However, when you go to that same brewer and you say, okay, the beer's a little too sweet, uh, let's make it drier. They don't know. Right. You know, there's, there's no science behind it for them to understand how you move things around, which means that person is a brewer, but they have no job prospects beyond that brewery or a similar one, they can't move up um, and they don't really understand what they're doing. I mean, and I have the same thing on the food side. For example, I, I'm pretty good at making sauces, but I still don't really know because I haven't done the study and the work to really understand exactly how an acid breaks a cream sauce. Mm -hmm. I know that if you add like lemon juice you know, into your cream sauce at a certain speed or in a certain amount, you know, you're probably going to break your sauce and, you know, your your fats and proteins are going to set up into curds and your sauce will be ruined. But exactly, I mean, I'm sure I knew at some point I read Harold McGee and I understood it. Mm -hmm. 
But if I'm going cooking every day, I'm kind of, you know, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I don't have to sell this to somebody for money. <laughs> you know, it's just my food, you know, and, and so I don't worry about it that much. But in the brewery, all this stuff counts. And if you want to be a brewer who can get ahead, I mean, I taught myself, but it took decades, <laughs> you know, to do that. And, you know, I don't think that we should be content to wait decades, especially when everybody else doesn't have to. In launching uh, the Michael Jackson Foundation, you had posted on Instagram uh, and you start, started that post by discussing someone you had referenced earlier, which is uh, Dave Infante, who at the time was writing for Thrillist. And he wrote an article that you referenced called There Are, uh, there are Almost No Black People Brewing Craft Beer. Here's why. Uh, why do you think that that experience, and as you said, you hadn't really you know, commented for the article, you had some brief interactions. Why do you think five years later that experience has still resonated with you? I think because there started to be a drumbeat after that article, and that article, which won the James Beard Award, may have um, helped start the conversation, uh, where people started to ask this question, like, where, where, where is everybody else? And so people started to ask me on a regular basis. And I had the same set of excuses that most people have. Well, you know, I think people have other things to worry about, and it's not really a big thing in the community and, 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 and it took me a while to reverse the overall outlook and say, well, if I'm saying it's not my fault, you know, just for an exercise, what if it was my fault? Mm -hmm. What if it was my fault? I've been brewmaster for years. I'm one of the best known names in brewing. You know, there must be a way that I could do this if I tried. Uh, but I'm taking a dozen international trips every year. I'm writing books. I'm doing television. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I'm not sitting there thinking at the end of the day, hmm, you know, what could we do, you know, about this? Now, a couple of years ago, I did start thinking seriously about it. And I reached out to a small distiller in Lexington, Kentucky uh, called Copper and Kings. Mm -hmm. Um and, and because they had actually, they reached out to me. They asked me to come down and teach at their bartender school. And I'm like, what's your bartender school? And they said, well, we have a bartender school for people of color and we're getting, we're recruiting people from all over the industry to come in and teach their subjects and kind of make, you know, these folks into skilled bartenders. And I said, wow, that's amazing. Like, how do you do that? And he sent me all this material and I looked at it and I said, this is a whole other job. Yeah. Like this is. This thing's enormous. I mean, I, I had a lot of respect for it, but I was saying, like, I don't know how I can, on top of my regular job mm -hmm. or jobs, how could I do this? But, you know, uh, there's nothing like a pandemic <laughs> <laughs> and having all of your plans canceled uh, to focus the mind. Right. And, you know, last year, you know, Tom Potter and I were talking about the old Michael Jackson fund, which had been sitting there moribund for 20 years under the American Institute of Wine and Food, which doesn't really exist anymore. And the money was sitting there and he said, well, you know, we'd like to disperse this money and and, and give away his scholarships and, and close the scholarship. We have like $30,000. And I you know, would you be involved in this? And I said, well, I'd love to if it goes in the direction of a people of color. And at first, I don't think Tom quite 
knew what I meant because he was like, well, you teach at CIA and mm -hmm. they're a great school. And why don't we just put it through CIA? I said, CIA is a terrific school and I've enjoyed teaching the students there. They're wonderful, but there's a problem. And Michael was very distinctly uh, uh, a genuinely anti-racist person who took actions on my behalf and the behalf of others to put people of color forward. Um, and so I think that he would, he was one of my best friends. I feel very strongly that he would approve of this and this is what I want to do. So if you want my involvement, this is the price. And we decided upon that. And I had already started to think about whether or not it could be made into something larger, but again, busy, busy, busy. So when the pandemic happened, then followed by, you know, the current social movement, it all kind of fell into place that now was the time, you know, whether I was ready or not uh, to do this, now was the time. Uh, I've been promised by Tom the seed money. And I'd seen that when I basically said to the brewing industry, uh, for the Oxford Companion of the Beer, like, will you guys basically help me write this book? Mm -hmm. Nobody can write this book by themselves. Nobody. And it ended up being 166 writers from 28 countries. You know, and I basically put a flag out there and said, will you follow the flag? And they said, yes, which is how that book came to be. And I said, you know, we see ourselves as really nice people and we are really nice people. But that doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And these mistakes have led to this situation, which is actually hurting our business and denying all these pleasures that you know that we're enjoying to everybody else. And so, in the foundation, I said, "Well, what if I were not to in any way change my standards, um, but I was simply to take." certain people and give them the opportunity that I've given even to refugees who came to us through refugee agencies um, or people who basically uh, showed up there as, you know, a forklift driver who then ends up working, you know, stacking, you know, uh, uh, bottles or whatever else on the bottling line and then works his way up to really running the bottling line. And then you send that guy to the MBA course and he comes back and he's a real badass. Now he understands how all the valves work, you know, mm -hmm. and now he understands like why you need to fob the bottles, you know, in a particular way. And, you know, how you lower bottle errors and what the toggles are. And all this stuff, somebody would have had to sit there and have the knowledge, all of it, and explain it to this person. Um to the extent that it's explained in the MBA course. Well, that's not going to happen, which is why they have MBA courses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, we started to give those opportunities to people who were of every background, you know, inside uh, our brewery, but there were no people of color who were Americans, you know, who were there to take advantage of it. And that's from like the bottom, from, from forklift drivers on up, there was nobody? There was nobody who took it up. Um, I mean, we had, you know, I mean, we have people working in various areas and including behind the bar, nobody ever came and asked. All the, all the 
all the jobs are posted inside the brewery. Um, but again, you have to remember, I put a job posting up and the job posting, and this is the subtlety of it. You know, the, a guy works his way up and you see him every day. You're working with him. You're working next to him every day. And you know who he is. And you're like, dude, I think you could do this. And you have that moment. And in that moment, really, you are bypassing your own, uh, you know, your own criteria. Mm -hmm. But you're not just hiring him now. Like, you already know who he is. Right. You know that he's careful. He hasn't killed anybody yet with a forklift. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know that you can follow instructions. This is like a friend of yours. And, and so you give that person the opportunity. Um. But a guy behind the bar, even at the brewery, who would like to work in the brew house would get the same application process as everybody else. Two years of experience and and or equivalent coursework. And so this was not something that we were thinking about. We were thinking about how do we get the best people? You know, and so and, you know, many of them are women, many of them are, you know. Uh, uh, but you know, this produces the same result and, you know, you know, the old saw about insanity, you know, equaling doing the same thing over and over again mm -hmm. and expecting a different result. Well, that's kind of what we were doing. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't like, I don't apologize, you know, for the fact that we were reaching for excellence, you know, in a, in an old fashioned way. And sure, we noticed that these people didn't show up, but we always thought it was somebody else's fault. Yeah. You know, either they weren't interested, you know, or whatever else until I really started to drill down on it and think about it and realize, you know, as you read a lot around now, you know, that, you know, racism isn't, isn't a feeling. I mean, some people have that, but hopefully, you know, hopefully a pretty small number of people actually have genuinely racist feelings. No, it's a it's a system, right. you know, an interlocked system of the way things actually work. So the foundation, is, the Michael Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling is now about halfway into its at least its initial stated goal in terms of what it's, you know, the money it's raising. What are you hoping to do with this foundation? Where what are you hoping to have it achieve in the next, you know, one, two, three, four, five years? Well, there there are two parts of the campaign. There's the public campaign, you know, which is running through our website, through GoFundMe charity, who, you know, uh thankfully do not, you know, take any of the money off mm -hmm. the top, et cetera. So that money is uh is going directly in and we're somewhere around $90,000 right now. The other part will be the reach out, you know, to the craft brewing industry and to the distilling industry, because Michael was as big in the distilling world as he was in the beer world, which we find still difficult to believe, but we saw it at his funeral, yeah. uh, which was quite striking because we were like, who are those people? And they're all clustered <laughs> across the parking lot and we're all together over here and we all know each other and they all know each other, but we don't know them. It was like going to Mitterrand's funeral and seeing three different women drape themselves with a casket. If you were like, who's that one? Um, yeah, I mean, he had two families, if you like, and, and we're honoring the other family, you know, too. I mean, I, I love cocktails and 
lot of my friends are in the cocktail world and I have a pretty good bar at home of all kinds of stuff, some of it interesting and obscure. So, you know, we're excited to reach out to them too, but we're going to reach out to brewers and ask them to support this. And some, of course, have stepped up in a big way already. Uh, other half put in $30,000. Mm-hmm. The Vale, I think, put in $7,500. You know, Burial, I mean, there were there are a number of breweries that just from my Instagram and Twitter posts, you know, have gone and looked at this and seen this is something that we want to support. And we were trying to figure out a way to do it. And we think that, you know, that this is a good way. And it's important to me to point out that, one, I just showed up. You know, this is not people like Jay Nickel Beckham and, and many other people mm-hmm. have been at this work for quite some time. You know, I am not showing up as, oh, Garrett comes to save the world. Right. However, I have sat in this chair for a long time. And I know exactly what people are looking for. And if I send you a smart guy who's been working hard in a brewery for a year and maybe he has rote knowledge, but not the scientific background, and I give him or her the scientific background, that person will show up and they will get hired. You know, because I don't believe that we are, you know, as an industry, somehow racist or worse than other people, but we are looking for things and we want skilled people increasingly as we get better at what we do, you know, you want to, you don't want a brewer who doesn't know what diacetyl is, Mm -hmm. you know, or doesn't understand oxidation. Um, and so we are basically creating the people that we want to see. Um, and that is a lever that I am essentially a hundred percent sure will work. I have zero doubts whatsoever. You know, there are not that many ways to make a mistake about this. Mm -hmm. We could select to the wrong people. That would be a way that we could make a mistake. We could select the wrong programs for them to go through. But we can have mechanisms for making sure that we don't end up with the wrong people, people who aren't really motivated or Mm -hmm. uh, whatever else, Um, and that we uh, don't end up picking the wrong programs. Everything's going to be vetted. Um, so that we're sure that when someone takes this course, that they haven't gone to some puppy mill of some sort and gotten a worthless certificate, right? That it actually means something. And that person will be assigned a mentor who will be a person of color within the industry, you know, who will give them somebody to talk to whose background, you know, looks something like theirs and who has walked in the door of a, of, of, you know, of, of, a, of a few dozen beer bars and looked in there and never seen anybody like themselves. Right. You know, that is an experience that, you know, pretty much every African-American beer fan has. So, you know, if you have somebody inside the industry that knows exactly what you mean and you have that person to talk to, that's an asset. Um, and so we're not sending people out there by themselves. You know, they'll be able to come back to us and say, I need help, you know, or can you point me out to somebody or, you know, do you know anybody who can help me with this? Mm-hmm. And as an organization, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to say, yeah. Now, I've been I've had a few people, you know, say, well, you know, why does everything have to be about race? <laughs> you know, and I said, well, it wasn't about race when I started putting on uh, uh 
technical conferences for five years only for Swedes, mm-hmm. you know, in Stockholm, which I've been doing. It wasn't about race when I put on uh, technical conferences for Norwegians or all the seminars and classes that I have taught for everybody. So I'm not going to apologize for trying to do something for people of color, number one, and number two, for the industry, because if we actually produce a more equitable industry, we are going to have more customers and right. we're going to make more money. Yeah. <laughs> you know? you know, so, you know, I don't think that I think this is a pure good, you know, and and doesn't mean that I have to slow down my, you know, my efforts on behalf of anybody else. Well, Garrett, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time because it's we have you know it's a pretty lengthy interview here, but I think it was full of very interesting details. And I wish you the best of luck both with Brooklyn and moving forward there. I have plenty of black chocolate stout uh, downstairs in my basement, getting ready to be awesome. consumed. And uh, I just wish you, you know, the best of luck with the foundation. Well, thanks very much. Really appreciate it. It's going to be fun. It'll be hard work, but it's going to be fun. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support. Does your brewery make deliveries? Routific is a route planning software that combines powerful route optimization with a five-star delivery experience for your customers. Managing local deliveries can be effortless and profitable. Go to routific.com to start your free, no-obligation, seven-day trial. Use promo code BEEREDGE to get your entire first month free.